This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You are listening to The Alien Chronicles. I want to sit in my mom's lap right now. It's what makes us different. <laughs> I went on every single door until someone told me yes. Well, I'd have to have at least one book. Every human has like a similar core. Get out there and meet as many people as I can. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Alien Chronicles, a podcast that features stories of immigrants from all walks of life who call America home. I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Our guest for today's show is a professor at Fordham University in New York. She teaches modern languages and literature, and she is almost never taken for an immigrant. Alicia Balfredini is an Italian-American. Today, we will take a glimpse into her personal life and her perspective as a European immigrant living in America. Alicia, I am so happy to have you here. Thanks for having me here, actually. It's exciting to be able to represent my perspective. You are our first Western European guest. We are very excited because the goal of this podcast is to bring perspectives from across the globe. And I'm sure our listeners will enjoy your perspective on immigration and life in the U.S. So, Alicia, let's get started. You grew up in a small village near Piedmont, Italy. And then you moved to New York. It's a metropolitan city. <laughs> How long did it take you to adjust? I always joke that my current complex has more inhabitants than in my village, which actually <laughs> has 1,200 people. So adjust, I think I have two answers to that. It was very fast for me right away to feel happy about the place where I was. And so my adjustment was very quick in that regard. I was very excited about the differences. That was something I was seeking, actively seeking. But when I think in more deep terms, I would say I only adjusted for, you know, real when my daughter went to school. And I was more in touch with the institutions and also a variety of backgrounds of people many of them who were really Americans and New Yorkers for a large portion. Whereas before that, I was in touch with a very international community of people. So my experience was not as much with native English speakers or native Americans or New Yorkers. And this was back home. You had a more diverse community back home. No, 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 no. Here in New York, at first... My oh, first few okay. years, I had to deal with, like, I, I just um, ended up hanging out with a very international community, part of it for the job I have, which is a language teacher, and part of it because I really got along with friends who went through a similar experience. Most of them decided that they wanted to live in New York. And when you shared that, it's a big thing to have in common. And then, that was in 2004. In 2006, Anna Julia was born, my daughter, and she started school pre-K when she was three. And that was really when I got to engage with the culture here in a more 
in a deeper way. So I was not picking my circle. I had to face things I didn't necessarily seek, um, like I opted in. So I want to take a step back and ask you, why did you move to U.S.? I was in a very privileged situation, meaning that I didn't have any compelling economical reason to move. I had a job. I was really fine. I was seeking an experience. I wanted to try and live abroad. And I thought I might stay for a year and see how it worked out. And when you came here, did you come alone? Were you married? What were the circumstances? Uh, Back then I came with my husband and it was a, a very exciting couple project. Then we never left. So it was in 2004 and now it's 2018. (laughs) Interestingly enough, I think he was the person more engaged, more interested in the idea of living in New York. But I'm the one who was sold right away and really loved the city to this this day. While I think he changed his perspective on the city, having seen the tough part of it. So what did you love the most about New York City and also American culture? This morning, I pulled up a piece of writing I did a couple of years after having moved to New York, where I described my experience in the first three months. And I was smiling at myself, reading in my own words how I felt. I just loved, and I still love, that I feel free to be myself. So that's, to me, the largest added value of living here. And that's what makes me endure obvious challenges. How is that different from where you grew up in Italy when you say you're free to be who you are? Was it different in Italy when you were growing up? So I don't know how much of it is the difference between Italy and America or between my small village and New York. So my knowledge of America is very limited. I've always lived in New York. I traveled a little bit, but this is not the type of knowledge that you develop over a a quick uh, vacation. So this premise, I think there's a huge difference in terms of the social pressure to conform. So New York can be very tough because it seems that people don't care very much. But to me, that's a great sense of feeling. I don't think it's not caring. I think it's not judging. Yeah. Whereas in, in my small village, there's a very strong network of support, not just from family. There's definitely a sense of community. When I hear the, the sentence, it takes a village, I always think about my village. It's like, <laughs> everybody's involved. It means everybody has an opinion. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and um, I think for especially a woman, the pressure is still very strong to meet certain social expectations. Now, I don't want to convey a very stale idea of Italy, like back to the... 18th or 19th century. It's not. Italy is a modern country and things are changing, but I feel the social pressure to conform is much stronger in my village in Italy than it is in New York. So when you came to the US, what are some of the traditions that you brought from Italy that you carry on to this day? So I'm very open to change. So it's many things that I don't really need But it's the small things that I would never give up. For example, we'll always have a tablecloth and a seated meal with regular plates and cups, no disposables, no standing at the counter. That to me is, I will never give that up. It's so interesting because whatever you're saying, I can totally relate to it. And not because I grew up in Italy or I was born in Italy, because 
even like having grown up in Pakistan, things that you were saying, sense of community, people judging you at times, but then having that community to help you out with everything and then not serving in plastic dishes. And even if you do, you don't feel comfortable doing that. All of that sounds so similar and so familiar. Although if you were to ask me and if we weren't having this conversation, I would not think that Italy and Pakistan would have anything in common. But but this is such an interesting perspective. So I think the beauty of this project is precisely the issues, the commonalities we have as human beings and also, you know, not as all human beings, but certain groups that you would not expect. And the shared human experience really helps breaking stereotypes or prejudices or fears that we have about otherness, right? That's so true. Back in Italy, you were a teacher and you were teaching. When you came to the U.S., did you continue doing that? Can you describe like initial few years in terms of your own career growth and your personal growth here? Once a teacher, always a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've been a teacher my whole life and I kept teaching. I moved from the elementary school level to college and definitely there was a one of the reasons is that an opportunity that I would likely not have in Italy, it's very hard to enter the university college professor track. So there was suddenly something available to me, but also it was a little easier because you need all the certifications in order to teach at public schools and uh, elementary levels. So I needed to work faster than I could afford to take a, another degree. So similarities to me are more striking than differences. I find my background as an elementary school teacher in Italy helped me tremendously. And I think there was a learning curve, you know, still I would like to thank my students from the first year who had to deal with me learning in the field, (laughs) the differences between the systems, which were quite strong. But um, ultimately, I think by the combination, you can really pick what works from the backgrounds that you have. So really handpicking the best things of uh, the American school system to me and what I brought from my experience and that uh, enriches everybody. So what are some of the differences or similarities in education system? And I do understand that uh, in Italy, you were an elementary school teacher. Here you're teaching college students. You're teaching modern languages and literature here. But like when you look at the educational system as a whole, are there any striking differences or similarities that you see between the two? major differences. Uh, And that the first one that comes to my mind is the private versus public option where in Italy it's really rare to go to private school. And going to private school doesn't necessarily mean that you're seeking a better learning opportunities. Actually, sometimes it's people who failed in public schools or trying to get back on track, uh, except for a few very prestigious uh, universities or colleges. So it's much more affordable for everybody. College, I think, and now I wouldn't want to say a wrong number, but it's, uh, when I went to to college, it was like a thousand euros per year. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe it was uh, even less because we have liras back then. But that's the number you you expect to pay. On the other hand, the system doesn't really support you as much as college in the States where professors really, they know you, you have small classes and you get homework. So it's really hard to uh, fall behind. In Italy, you're completely independent. So it takes a lot of discipline and motivation to do it. So dropouts in college are more likely to happen in Italy because of the way the system is structured. 
Also, I think um, even though Italy has many issues with racism, definitely does not institutionalize racism the way the school system in, in the U.S. is structured. The level of marginalization that you would find in schools, especially in the city, uh, New York is the most segregated school system in the country, right? It's not apparent to the same degree in, Italian, in the Italian school system. So do you think it could be because, and again, I don't know this for a fact, so I would ask you, do you think it could be because is Italy a more homogenous country or a more homogenous society versus the U.S. and specifically New York? So you see people from all different, like, like different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. Do you think that could be the reason or is it some, are there um, certain policies or, or certain structures in place that facilitate that kind of racism? So I think that um, the idea of Italy as a homogeneous country is outdated at this point, uh-huh. meaning that it's very common to have both immigrants or Italians that don't look like you would imagine an Italian to look like because their parents were immigrants. So the United States are like, have been like that for a long time. For eternity, it's a more recent phenomenon, but schools are really of all colors. Like you could see people of all colors in a classroom nowadays with different religious backgrounds, for example. So there's a, definitely a gigantic difference in history with slavery being a very defining moment in the United States. To your point about Italy now being a more diverse society, in your opinion, are immigrants treated any differently in Italy than in US? And if so, in what ways? It's a tough question and very complicated. Italy has a lot of issues with, you know, the same political issues that you see in the United States in terms of government. Italy has similar movements and in the recent elections there were they succeeded, they went to the government. So the Cinque Stelle and the Lega are now um, leading the country. And that's a xenophobic group, which is heartbreaking for me. Italy is struggling with dealing with diversity. It's definitely an issue. And racist remarks are sadly not uncommon. I would say that uh, we don't have the politically correct facade. So some things are more visible. And again, I'm just generalizing. In the States, there's a lot of things that are not said, but are implicit anyways. So I don't know how much better that is. It is true that after the last elections, some things that were unspokeable are now something that will be overt in communication. I think it's a complicated issue. So you being an immigrant in the United States, I'm sure it was a learning process. And as you've, you've, you've touched upon a few things, but then you come from Western. So was it easy to assimilate in the, the American culture because of similarities? Or do you think it was as hard as it would say be for me? What is your take on that? I think a lot about that. And I thought about it from the first day because it was very fast for me to realize that I had an advantage. And my accent actually didn't hold me back. It was like the moment people realized I was Italian, they would love to have coffee with me or just um, <laughs> say they had an Italian friend. And they just assumed I had this elegance and taste and other less <laughs> flattering characteristics, uh, maybe. But definitely there is a prestige that comes with being Italian and that enraged me dramatically. 
because I could see more subtle or less subtle remarks, racist remarks on our nationalities. Also, you know, that made my life easier. The bottom line is my life was in a way easier, but it's extremely unfair and unjust. And Italians were really victimized as many other nationalities at the turn of the century, the 20th century. If you look at the New York Times titles, it's shocking how insulting and offensive they are toward Italians. Same remarks, similar remarks might nowadays apply to other nationalities. Said that, I think there's still something that bothers me because I feel sometimes it's exoticized to be Italian, Italian woman. um, (laughs) It really bothers me to be associated with certain features. Mm. Even though they might be positive to the eye of the speaker, it's just um, flattening out the person I am and reducing me as a representative of my country. I know it's not meant um, in a bad way, so I'm never upset about it. I never get upset of people with it, but I try to put a boundary and you know, immediately say, you know, I'm, I happen to be Italian, but please look at me like a three-dimensional person. That's so true. And you're also multilingual, right? So you speak many languages. Was that helpful in assimilating in, in this culture and also creating relationships or bonds with other people like from other cultures and ethnicities? And in what ways have you used your knowledge of other languages and cultures to assimilate better in New York? Definitely being able to use some more um, like academic English terms really is a very easy, a very spendable tool to have. Because people label you a lot, um, depending on the way you sound. And again, my accent could be labeled as charming for some people. It was, I was still very self-conscious about it. But then if I could use educated words, I thought I could you know, reassert some power in the communication. And that's definitely true. But uh, being multilingual to me, I'm, I'm a big advocate and not just for the job I have. And it doesn't have to be Italian at all. Only through language you can really embrace a different perspective on reality and on the world. And being able to shift between different languages really uh, brings a much deeper comprehension of an understanding of others and where they come from. Being able to attempt a language shows the other person you, you are curious about them, that you want to learn more. So very often when I, when I get falafel at my very falafel place in my block, I just say shukran or assalamu alaikum. And I remember the first time these people are from Jordan, we just you know, <laughs> respond in Arabic. I said, no, <laughs> I don't know anything else. I just, you know, just love to say that. Or I fake a lot of Spanish, especially when I go buying produce in Dominican places. And I know I make mistakes, but I love that people hang in there with me and respond in Spanish. They speak English. They could definitely meet me there, but they just allow me to practice. Languages allow you to interact with people that are different. You demonstrate a different will to engage. That is absolutely correct because I'm multilingual too. And whenever I meet someone who speaks the language that I know and we communicate in that particular language, it just changes the whole dynamic. And that's why it is so important to emphasize on the importance of knowing more than one language is rather than 
trivializing it or downplaying it or even criticizing it for that matter. You are a professor, as we've mentioned this a few times, and you interact with students a lot. What are some of your thoughts on the future of this country or the direction this country is moving into? And given the current political environment, what is some of the feedback that you get from students? What are some of the thoughts that you would like to share with us? I teach in a campus that's not as diverse as the city, but interacting with my students gives me a lot of hope because I see that most of them are genuinely interested in listening and engaging in a conversation. So I think my generation failed the country way more than the current 18, 20 years old. Uh, And I think we need to be really open-minded in listening to them, but also in exposing them to as many perspectives, not in a pedantic way, not by training, because we know better at all, but just to represent more perspectives. And that's why I think languages should be, you know, language programs are very important in a, they're very formative, regardless of your major. So what impact has current political situation had on you as an immigrant? Because there is a lot of rhetoric around immigrants, not as much, again, around Western European immigrants, but how has it personally impacted you? Dramatically. It's been a very trying time of my life. So the impact was very direct. I saw some of my students, some students of mine came crying or concerned because maybe their parents were immigrants or because they felt their group was targeted, but, um, you know, anti-transgender stances. So I feel it very much. A lot of um, people that were vulnerable already before, their vulnerability is now to an unprecedented uh, level in recent history. Then personally, I'm on a green card currently, and I'm very concerned that I may not be able to assess citizenship because of the shift in views. So I have a personal concern. My daughter is American also, so it's really ironic that I might be in the position of, like many people, having a daughter who's fully American and feel completely deprived of any capability to stay in this country or to stay fully, because, for example, I do not vote right now, right? I don't have a right to vote. But I think the most difficult impact is being on my perception of human beings always inherently good. I think the vast majority of people are good. They just might need to sit and, you know, talk a little more to each other. But it's been so many persistent attacks that denied any humanity to others that um, it was really hard to deal, like really from a very philosophical standpoint. And also like the Italian community living in New York, what do you think, I mean, in terms of your interactions with your Italian friends or what do you think is like their take on all of this? Because again, yeah, I, I would like to get your perspective on this first. And then, yeah, I don't think I can speak for the whole Italian community because I talk to a lot of Italians, but there are people who are my friends. And unfortunately, one of the problems is that we tend to live in bubbles of similarly minded uh, politically people. So all of my friends agree with (laughs) more or less with what my experience is. I don't think it's representative of all Italians in New York. I have a couple of friends who come from Italian families, and I was talking to one of my friends about my podcast and, you know, immigrants and all. And she said something along the lines that 
all my family, like most of my family is very pro what's happening in terms of immigration policies currently being implemented. And her family is Italian. And and she was telling me how she argues with them that, um, you know, we came as immigrants as well. So why can't we be as open to other immigrants coming in? So you're right. Maybe you hang out with a group that is more progressive in their thoughts as you are. And that's another problem. Do you think we should reach out to people who disagree with us and try to have these discussions around uh, difficult topics? Maybe that way we can understand each other better. And, and if no, so, I, what we yeah, keep keeping the conversation open is really important. And just being able to create that space where people take a little risk of being a unpleasant conversation instead of um, never having that conversation and ended up being so polarized. The moment we're living is very indicative of that type of lack of dialogue and listening to others. So rather than indoctrinating people about how good it is, how positive it is, I have a conversation, a democratic conversation. I think just by putting people together and doing things together, that's when it happens. So segregated schools or segregated work environments or even living conditions. Neighborhoods are so dense in one ethnicity or one race, typically, right? That is a big part of the problem because you never get to see the other as your neighbor or as your the person you've been working on a school project with. And it's inevitably our tensions when you confront, let's not say confront, it's when you talk to people who have a different idea, but it's when you really deeply can question yours if it's something worth questioning. And you just don't think you have the right answer, the one right answer, because there's no one right answer. Yeah, and from what you're saying, uh, from what at least I'm hearing is that We don't have to have these difficult conversations. We can just get to know each other on a personal level. And that will hopefully resolve a lot of issues because once you know somebody on a personal level, then you are more sympathetic or you have more empathy towards who they are, where they come from and their situation as well. There are two things that really happen when you do that. One is prejudice becomes factual knowledge of the other person. So some things might not hold true. Stereotypes get questions when you meet real people. That's a very important piece, right? Another important thing that happens is that fear dissolves when you see the other person is not as threatening. So there might be a lot of things you don't like about the other person, but the moment you share a project or something that you have to do, fear typically doesn't have any reason. Many decisions that are punitive towards certain groups of the population, unfairly, unjustly, come from fear. Fear is always the worst advisor. And the political climate right now is really leveraging on fear and stereotypes to get certain political outcomes. You were to describe America in one word. What would that be? Oh, I have that. The dreamer. Really? Yeah. Can you can you elaborate? It's such yeah. an interesting word that you used. So. I think, first of all, it's a political stance because dreamers are being questioned in the the role in society, in the American society. So that's uh, the reason why, jokingly, I said the dreamer. But I also, there's a deeper belief. I think America is this great, and maybe I don't know America, I know New York, but <laughs> let's say America, this great capacity to envision different things, to have high ideals, to fly high, instead of settling for small compromise that's safe. 
And I love that. I love that because it takes boldness. It takes that boldness to do remarkable things. And I really hope those remarkable things are open to see the world as, a, you know, like, a, again, the shared space for all human beings to be, rather than being based on personal or provincial type of interests. And if you could change one thing about America, what would that be? <laughs> can I change, choose only one or can I choose two? Okay, choose two. <laughs> <laughs> so the first, no, I'm just, the first, the thing that I would really change about America right now, the most urgent thing to me is this take on environment because it's such an urgent matter. It's already very late and we can't afford any further delay in acting on pollution and the various uh, pollutants that affect uh, the planet. Why do you think people have this notion in America? Like, why is recognizing this issue such a big deal in one of the most developed nations in the world? What do you think? I think it's because it's inconvenient. Because, uh, and we go again to the community versus individual freedom. The fact that you have to give up certain comforts that you're used to seems to be an intrusion of, on your individual freedoms for some people. And of course, I completely disagree. It's not about a freedom. It's about a being wise on a shared resource. It's not just yours. I think that's ultimately the point. And definitely there's also a different approach to science. What is considered a sound scientific um, accomplishment is not necessarily seen as that by the large population, even though there's a lot of activists and people who support the cause also in America, obviously. But as a country overall, there's so much more that could be done. And what was the other thing? You said you, could, you oh. wanted to change two things. <laughs> yeah, institutionalized racism. I think um, you need to act on, on that and just really free the country to use all of its potential. You just so much human beauty and potential that's kept behind because of uh, institutionalized racism. And this it's really time to move past that. If you were to give, like, any ideas as to how this could be achieved? What do well, you that think? would give me a Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, if, you know, starting from very early on and schools, definitely a major area where you can work on that. Um, but there's uh, many laws that can be changed because they, in more or less subtle ways, exclude certain parts of the population from exercising their rights or finding like voting rights or funding housing, having access to education, mortgages, loans, even being protected by you know, aggressions or you know being safe. Just so many institutional ways to perpetuate in history that it's time to leave behind. And accepting that history. I think once you accept that part of the history, then you can move on and you can correct. At least uh, what I see is that People in America don't acknowledge the bad part. They just focus on the good that has transpired. I think they might acknowledge it, but consider it past. And you can't yeah. say it's past when you look at numbers, sheer numbers, not yeah. even the human experiences where a large part of the population is excluded from basic things that we take for granted. If you could change one misconception or one perception about European immigrants in the U.S., 
as a European immigrant, what would you say? I know that. <laughs> Europe is not a country. <laughs> <laughs> really, people say that? No, uh, maybe not literally, but there's a, um, Europe as a shared something. I agree, and I'm a big supporter of the European Union. But this idea that Europeans shared is like, a, and it's usually used to indicate a very vague taste, like refined taste. It's really funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> this was such an interesting conversation and I'm having so much fun. And now we'll move on to something else, which is my rapid fire round. And if you've listened to any of the past episodes, you know that this is another fun round that we do yeah. so that our listeners can get to know you even better. Yeah. So we'll start with, and you're a professor, so we'll start with like reading books or listening to music? Music. Really? <laughs> yes, really. I love music. And if you could eat only one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? <laughs> I'll just confirm the stereotype. Pizza. <laughs> oh my God. And I was, I, 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 somehow I was thinking you would say that. <laughs> if you could take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? Okay, three things to a deserted island. The canopy collection of movies. A journal and, um, oh, yeah, the New York Times. The New York Times? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Name three things on your bucket list. Travel the Middle East. Hmm? Really? Yep. Maybe reach peak over 3,500 meters, so hiking. And the third one would be being able to work in a different country. It's not Italy and not the United really? States. Really? Which country would you think, like, which country do you want to work Maybe in? Maybe something in Central or South America. And if you could have any superpower, what would you want? I think teleport, because I love teleportation. I love to travel. And also I could be there for my family when they need a little help for like a couple of hours. That's so true. <laughs> I want to do that. that. That's a good one. Your biggest failure? Oh, I know that. Getting my father to visit me in the United States. He hasn't done that yet? Never. Uh, so <laughs> Still you, working on it. And do you visit often then? Once a year usually. Uh, and your biggest achievement? Achievement? Oh, being a single mom. And if you could describe yourself in three words? Caring, ironic, and persistent. Persistent. I like that. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? I think. When I have to make decisions from my, you know, big decisions in my life, somebody told me, what if your daughter were in your shoes? What would you tell her? And that was a great way to make me focus on what matters, like which is ultimately your happiness. Your idea of vacation? Oh, just spending as much time as possible in the place and getting to do things that locals do. Oh, Absolutely. I love going to supermarkets when I'm on vacation. <laughs> Your all-time favorite movie. Okay, this is like asking me what's my favorite child, which is easy because I have one child, but I have many <laughs> movies I like. Uh, I'm a big movie lover. And since uh, Bernardo Bertolucci just passed recently, I'm going to pick a movie of his, but it, every day the answer will change. It's Novecento, 900 by uh -huh. Bertolucci. And best Italian restaurant in New York. You have to know this because if once you tell me I am visiting, this is a you know, very difficult response because I have, okay, I like Italian food that's simple and, you know, high very good ingredients. So I don't seek the fancy, complicated recipes in New York. I get them when I go to Italy. But I definitely go out for pizza because you need a wood-burning oven, which doesn't fit in a Manhattan apartment. Right? <laughs> so I have 
a recommendation for good pizza, Italian pizza places. And I would recommend to go to Harlem where I live because there's the highest concentration of delicious pizza. Mm. So the closest we have that we love is Bettolona in West Harlem. But there's also Sotto Casa is delicious. Babalucci is good. Delicious as well. Bono is good. (laughs) 314, 314 just opened. It's also a an Italian pizza, so go to Harlem if you want a good pizza. Oh, nice. <laughs> and your favorite emoji? Oh, I know. I like the emoji. I don't know what's called. Where the, the face, head of a person, and she's putting her hands on the forehead. I, say, oh. I use that a lot. I, I love that emoji. <laughs> tea or coffee? Coffee, even though I drink more tea. I love my coffee. And home is? Home is where I feel free to be myself. And on that positive note, we end our interview with Alicia. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It was indeed very interesting. Thank you for coming to our show. Thank you for giving me voice. (laughs) I would also like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. And please subscribe to our podcast. We are on nine platforms, including iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Also, if you have a story to share or any new ideas, please contact us at thealienchronicles at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at chroniclesalien and you can find us on Instagram at thealienchronicles. With this episode, we wrap up our first season of The Alien Chronicles. We would like to thank all the listeners who have supported us, who have subscribed to us, shared our podcast with others. We will need a lot more support in our second season, which will start in the beginning of January 2019. We have a great guest lineup. We have immigration lawyer, we have journalist, Native Americans perspective on immigration, refugee asylum seeker from Afghanistan, and many other guests. Also, we are in the midst of creating our own website, which will be launched soon. As soon as it's up and running and functioning, we will post all the information on social media. And you can check out our website for interesting information about our guests. We want it to be as interactive as possible. So we will have a place where you can ask questions from the guests we've already had on our platform and those who we will be interviewing in future. So please stay tuned for a lot of stuff coming your way in January. And in the meantime, stay connected and happy holidays. See you in 2019.